if I really wanted an authentic journey, then if I am hiding from anybody, my employees, my investors, my it doesn't matter who my co-founders, then that's not authentic. Then that means I will put a mask on for these people, but I will also privately over here work on my authentic self. That doesn't sound right to me. And I had a lot of uh, encouragement at the same time to say, show them who you are from the people who are nearest and dearest to me. So if they knew who you are, they'd love you anyway, right? And so that was the biggest fear. If I showed them who I was, what would happen? And I'm sure that's in the mind of everybody listening to. Like, if I was really me, would I be rejected? Would I be a disappointment? Would I be all of these questions? But the truth is, if you want to walk the path of authenticity, then you have to be unafraid to show them who you are. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked about entrepreneurship and using marketing and business skills for social good with Jonathan Rosa, founder and CEO of Formative an agency that works with purpose-driven brands and foundations to build programs and campaigns that drive social impact on a global and local level. Our guest today is Des Rock, CEO and founder of cybersecurity company SeaMonster. As a lifelong entrepreneur, Des has developed a strong sense of what it takes to be a great leader. Our conversation went deep into what is authentic leadership and how you need to do the work on yourself before you can be an effective leader. Des talked about following a less than linear career path, being a woman in tech, and getting stuck away from her family during the pandemic. One of the topics she touched is her experience as a Turkish woman raised in Australia and living in the US, and what it means to truly hold more than one country in your heart as your home. It was a moment that truly resonated with me, given my experience moving to the US from Italy 30 years ago. Finally, given Desi's experience in cyber security, I had to ask her for her insights on the topic and some of the implications for society right now. Enjoy the episode. Let's just dive into it and have you give my listener an introduction, who you are and a little bit of your story and feel free to go for as long as you want. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. You know, I really, really was looking forward to being here and talking about leadership, especially in the light of authenticity. My name is Des Rock. By my accent, I'll let you know, first and foremost, I'm raised in Australia. I'm in the um, cybersecurity space. I'm a founder and CEO. Prior to that, I have a string of jobs that one leads to the other. And when you look at it, it looks very chaotic. But when you, when you realize that I'm filling needs and, you know, then you can tell that I'm an entrepreneur and I have been. And I suppose that was my calling. I have always found myself leading from when I was little all the way. And uh, I've certainly paid a lot of attention. I don't think you can be a woman and get away with mediocrity. <laughs> in leadership. So I have literally paid attention to hone in my skills and, you know, to be better at what I do. So that's a very brief overview. So you mentioned you're an entrepreneur, you founded Sea Monster. Was that your first entrepreneurial venture? No, it wasn't. Before this, I'm a co-founder, by the way, but before this one, we had a penetration testing company. We were professional hackers. And before that, there's a string of stuff. I was a photographer for a while. I was studying law I um, with an MBA as well. So there's a whole string of stuff in my background, as well as marketing and, and event management and all that sort of stuff. But I think where I'm most suited is finding a need within 
the society and fulfilling that need. So that's the CEO part and the, you know, the entrepreneurial part. And of course, the leadership part is what puts me into leading the team to do that. Yeah. You mentioned that you had a lot of very different, even functional experiences. Take me through a little bit like your formative year and some of the moments where maybe your most important beliefs in how you want to leave were formed. In any group, you know, when you start, even in group projects, looking, thinking back all the way then, there's always, I think people just naturally find their fit. There's always the person who does the work right at the last minute. There's one person who does most of the work and then there's one person orchestrating everything and making sure everyone gets done. And guess which one I was. <laughs> I was the one always making sure everyone was accountable, make sure everyone was represented and make sure everyone did their fair share. So even in the early days, that was very, very present in my nature. You know, that was always the way. And I also did, in, in all of that, I actually did some dog training with Caesar Milan way back when, right, as a as an interest because I had uh, interest in um, one of the no-kill shelters that was next to me. I raised this because through that was one of the ways that actually honed in, that was not, you know, that you would not think of leadership training, but really was because I had to rein in any anger or rage that I had in order to handle animals. And because animals are very, very sensitive, right? So they can actually pick up on what you're doing and saying much more than humans can. So that was really good training on having an, uh, having an animal like a dog pay attention to you, to you know, take orders from you and take, you know, to have that from you. That really, really had me look at the way I w- was leading and kind of like chipped off a lot of the raw edges that I had, which was, and this is younger days when I was a lot more angrier, a lot more just do what I say, you know what I mean? Just like not not necessarily working on my communication and my presentation on how the person's hearing me, you know? So that's a formative memory right there. You mentioned that in your earlier years, you were maybe more angry or more like driven in how you were trying to get people to do what they needed to do. If you were to articulate now the type of leader that you aspire to be, what are the key traits in that? In order to answer that question, I had to be introspective enough and we all should be introspective enough to ask why I was so quick to anger, right? And a lot of that was because of the baggage that I was carrying all throughout my life that had raised me to that. And so I suppose the big overarching narrative in my leadership story is in order to become an effective leader, I had to put down all of the baggage I was carrying one by one. And that was, apparently it was quite a lot, you know, there was a lot there and it took some time to unpack them all and put them aside properly to to want of a better analogy. Some of them were very, very challenging. Some of them took me back to what felt like a raw state. Uh, Some of them nearly broke me. And that was a good thing because then I had to rebuild myself back up again and change the way I thought, change the way I did stuff. So the anger really came from there, from early childhood, early, just all of the trauma and all of the baggage that I had in my life. So as I grew and I have the privilege of aging, as I am go through life and have the time and the, and the capacity, and I've got to tell you, COVID being, st- I was in New York and I was stuck there for nine months away from my family, away from everything. This is when the TikTok thing happened, you know, when I was on TikTok just because of just to be and then got a 20,000 following in a month and didn't know what to do with that. 
But during that process, it allowed me very, for the very first time in my life to be on my own. And in being on my own, everything, all the demons that were very settled and I had pushed them deep down, all rose to the surface, as that, that, that usually happens, right? But I was given the opportunity in that very, very traumatic situation to, to work them through. And I literally did work them through on TikTok. I didn't realize that at the time, but looking back, I was working them out in front of a camera on TikTok. And hence, and because I was... I honestly thought there was going to be three people following me and they were going to be, you know, three good friends, right? That's it. So I had nothing to lose and everything to gain in that just I wanted to be as authentic as I could possibly be. So I let down the mask and just spoke from the heart. And that's, I could see that that's exactly what people resonated to. That's exactly what people were following and why I ended up with the large following. As I was on camera working out my my stuff. So by the end of that, getting to where you where you wanted me to go, which is like what happened to the anger, by the end of that, once I found my true inner self, like once I could peel back all of the uh, trauma that had happened to me and come back to the true essence of who I am, I realized that who I am isn't angry, who I am isn't upset, you know what I mean, who I am isn't, who I am just is, and that's good enough. And then I could lead from the heart finally. That is a fascinating story. And I have like 50,000 questions. <laughs> Good. I'm going to start with the easy one. Actually, I don't think there's any easy questions in here. So you made the decision to work out your anger, even though you said you didn't know what it was, but you made a decision to be very public about some very private and personal information. That was not a conscious decision, by the way. I did not intend to have a following. I didn't. Basically, what happened by the end of that journey, when I had that following, I shut down my TikTok, like I went private immediately because my intention isn't to be attention grabbing. My intention isn't to be an influencer. My that was never my intention. My intention was to work out what I was going through. But I totally understand that people responded to the authenticity that I was bringing. Do you know what I mean? Like I wasn't faking it. Yes. So where I was going is whether you knew that the following was going to be five people or 20,000 people, you chose to do this in something that it's a publicly accessible forum. I'm looking here at your timing. You were already the CEO of Sea Monster. I'm interested in the conversation that was going in, in your head and potentially with your partners around the fact I'm the CEO of this company, which by the way, does cybersecurity. And I'm just going to speak publicly about these things. I'm interested in like what that conversation was internally, if it needed to be externally, and then how you weighed sort of the, the decision. Okay. Yeah. So what you're asking, what you're tap dancing around is shame. Because the question is, right, how would I have accounted my, for myself to go so public when I am also in such a figure, you know, like a figurehead, I'm a founder and a CEO and a leader and all that sort of stuff. Well, the answer is this. TikTok was in the corner. It is not where it is today. Like back then, the TikTok was not the same. It felt like a private section over, over, over there on the internet. However, as we progressed, I realized two things. If I really wanted a, an authentic journey, let's say a spiritual journey, right? If I really wanted to be authentic, then if I am hiding from anybody, from my work, my employees, my investors, my it doesn't matter who my co-founders, then that's not authentic. Then that means I will put a mask on for these people 
but I will also privately over here work on my authentic self. Well, that's just, that doesn't sound right to me. So, you know, and I had a lot of uh, encouragement at the same time to say, if you want to show them who you are, was what I get or was told, right, from the people who were nearest and dearest to me. So if they knew who you are, they'd love you anyway, right? And so that was the biggest fear. If I showed them who I was, what would happen? Like that was your, and I'm sure that's in the mind of everybody listening too. Like if I was really me, would I be rejected? Would I be a disappointment? Would I be all of these questions? And it was in my mind too, that self-doubt was there. But the truth is, if you want to walk the path of authenticity, then you have to be unafraid to show them who you are. So in that case, if by now my investors have seen, or I'm sure they can look it up, nothing is hidden on the internet, then I can stand up and defend everything that I've said and done and gone through because I'm a human. Humans are fallible by nature, right? So I wasn't offensive. I wasn't anything. I was literally going through something. This is through the pandemic. Who can stand up among us and say we didn't go through something during the pandemic? So this is my authentic self also doing this as well. If you want to go to the reason why I shut it down is because I also know that as I continue on my leadership journey, the world is not ready for what I call a modern Renaissance woman, which is someone who is adept in many areas. They just want, okay, you're very good at leadership. You're very good at cybersecurity. Let us pigeonhole you. That's society, right? Whereas if I talk about the depth, which is what this podcast is about, about the depth, about finding what, what you overcome to find that leadership, I don't know if how many people really want to delve into that. If they did, we wouldn't have podcasts like this. This would be an everyday occurrence. I'm fascinated by the fact that your first word that you chose to describe my question was shame, because if this podcast has an agenda, which it does, <laughs> the agenda is that in this conversation that you and I are having around these terms, I've had in very different fashions in a few of the last few episodes, like Harry Duran, who is a podcasting consultant and marketing consultant who publishes a newsletter that it's really about his spiritual journey and connected to his business. I've had it with Christina Wallace, who just wrote a book called The Portfolio Life. I think the not so hidden agenda of the podcast is that the second that you cross that line, you're actually going to lose people that you don't want in your life or clients that you don't want in your life. And the ones that are coming and staying are going to be so much more connected and deeper to you. Like the, you know, the way that I phrased it in my conversation with Harry is like, so basically you're saying that if one was to put this in marketing terms, you're getting less lead who have a much higher conversion rate, right? Because they've already filtered through all the superficial reasons why they wouldn't be interested in working with you. Right. I suppose for me, the level in which we're discussing right now would impact my employees, the people who work with me on a daily basis. So in that case, if we were to look at it through that lens, then it would be the people who would be attracted to working in the organisation that I'm creating, correct? So that works perfectly for me. You are absolutely right. I do not want people who do not want to bring their full authentic self to the team. Absolutely. As far as my customers go, you know, the product oozes authenticity and oozes that, you know, we stand by what we do and all, and all of that, but also the quality of the product should stand up for itself anyway. So the pitch in which I'm hoping that it would reach would be for my employees, the people I surround myself and the attention to detail I pay for corporate culture as well, because it touches on everything we're talking about now. 
It's great that you're talking about your corporate culture, because the second question that I want to go back to is, if you were to articulate as a leader, my goal is to be like this, and what are some of like the key traits? My goal is to bring the best out in everybody. Let's start with what the definition of a leader is, because there seems to be, if we look around the world, leadership seems to be telling people what to do. And that is such a wrong definition of leadership. Leadership, if, you, if that, that is a part of leadership, for sure. Making decisions is a part of leadership. The most important part that is neglected is looking after the people you lead. And that goes across with spiritual leaders, politicians, company leaders. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a school board. It doesn't really matter. If you're not looking after the people you're leading, making decisions and telling people what to do doesn't make you a great leader. It just makes you a leader. Right. So what I focus in on is the third part, which is making sure that my staff are safe enough. And it's also undoing a lot of the corporate culture that they bring too. Do you know what I mean? So people want to not work in a toxic environment, yet they bring that toxic environment in because that's all they know. So um, to undo a lot of that and to teach, to say that this is a safe space and the idea is is to get to know where you will shine and how you will shine. It sounds a bit wishy-washy, but at the end of the day, if we're measuring metrics, it means that people are far more productive because, because of all of that, because they're feeling valued, because they're feeling like they're part of the team. I think it sounds wishy-washy, but it isn't. So I'm curious, for somebody who's making the journey to be more this type of leaders, what are some like practical pieces of advice, things that they can actually do to lead that way? It's hard for me to quantify, which is why I'm finding hard, the words, you know, difficult, because once I found that in myself, it flows naturally now. It really does flow naturally. Everything I do, everything I stand for, every decision I make comes from that stance. So when it comes down to what do I practically do, it, I find that question difficult to answer because what I'm asked to do is if somebody hasn't reached that level of oneness inside, how can they mask this? So what are the tips that you can give them so they can actually also do this? And the answer is, is do the damn hard work within. Like if you have issues and if you really are not okay on the inside, you need to start there. If you want to be an okay leader, if you want to be a great leader, if you want to be an okay leader, read a whole bunch of books, listen to all the tips and then just copy. That's also known as masking, right? But if you want to be a great leader, you need to unpack all of the stuff that's always been in your way. And then if you're, if you're made to be a leader, that stuff will flow from within. That is a great point, which by the way, I agree 100% of as a leader, your job is to serve the people that you're leading. Was that always your view of the world? And, and how did that start crystallizing and become really clear to you and how you want it to be? You know, growing up when you're seeing politicians, when you're seeing leadership in organisations, I've had bosses, I've had leaders before, and when you're seeing this and you're seeing the mediocrity in middle management and asking your questions like, well, how did we get to this? How did we get to such ordinary people in positions of leadership? You know, how does that happen? And realising what is the difference. So I knew early on what a good leader was. Also, in my personal life, we always talk about work, like everything we're talking about is work, but one of the best situations in which you can practice leadership for everybody is within their own family, right? So if your family, like if you go to work and you're like puff out your chest and like I'm a leader, I'm a CEO and all that sort of stuff, meanwhile it is a disaster at home, then I question what type of leader you are because that should affect 
every aspect of your life. And I don't know how many people who call themselves CEOs in our space, you know, and meanwhile, their personal life is a disaster, right? Which uh, immediately I know they don't have their, they haven't worked out all their demons yet. Yeah, that's true. So take a little bit of a turn still within this conversation. If you want to be a successful leader, there is a combination of being as you are describing, but then at the same time, having the practical accountability and knowledge specifically whatever industry that you operate in. And so I hate to ask the cliche question, but as a woman in tech, I have to assume (laughs) that you have not walked into rooms where everybody's like, oh, here's a woman. She knows everything. Let us hear what she has to say. No, not immediately. I don't have the uh, privilege, and that's what it is, of walking into a room and being assumed that I know everything in that room for sure. But I think within minutes of meeting me or being in my presence for an hour, that generally corrects itself. There are obviously people who do not want to listen. And so those people have prejudice and bias that I haven't got the time to work out. Does that make sense? I don't have the time to sit there and hold, patiently hold their hand and then tell them where they're wrong. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, I can definitely make swift work of that stuff. But if you spend an hour with me in a room and you still don't understand or still don't feel that I know exactly what I'm doing and that I can lead, then my background and my record should show that. That, that should happen anyway. My record should show that. My, you know, uh, for metrics, if you're looking at metrics, how I have doubled my business year after year after year, right? That's a metric. That's speaks everybody's language how the you know we went from inception to an idea to the growth of the company of where it is now that's a metrics as well as far as what i'm like as a leader and this is the thing that i i vehemently believe if you really really want to know what kind of a leadership you should ask two people one my children honest to god ask them what i'm like because in this world when we give our eulogy right? It's our children who know us the most, if you have children, by the way, but it's our children or our family members who know us the most, right? So, the honest, honesty would come from them, right? And secondly, people who I work with on a close proximity, you know, in my work, you should ask them what kind of a leader I am because I could sit here and bluster and tell you and make up stuff. I'm awesome. I'm amazing. But don't believe any of that. You need to ask the people who actually lead, that's where the truth should come from. That's great. Actually, you mentioned your family and, and which reminded me a little bit of a curiosity around your personal story because you and I both have foreign accents and are both living in the US. How did you end up here? What's the story behind that? Well, like most Americans, we're all immigrants. And then because of my accent, which is Australian, you have to understand that I just came from another immigrant country as well, (laughs) because I'm not an Indigenous Australian. So I come from a small town on the coast of the Black Sea and in Turkey, right near the border of Georgia, the country. So my parents immigrated to Australia. I'm a first generation immigrant having been brought in there. That impacted my life story a lot too. And gave me, I suppose, the wind beneath my wings to make sure that it wasn't for nothing, right? But yeah, now I find myself in the US because the US, as we all know, is one of the best markets for innovation to live, right? Because of the whole VC market, the fact that we had the Silicon Valley way back when before. So this is what brings me here as well as the best market for, you know, this is could be said to be the hub of cybersecurity. Don't get me wrong, that's changing. Like uh, there's a lot of cybersecurity all around the world as well. But uh, that's what brings me here as well. So I also think that 
I'm very nomadic because I spent a long time, and I'm sure you did too, like where are you really? What's your real country? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like if I was, you know, made to choose, which one would I pick? And every answer felt wrong because I was denying another part and another part and another part. And then I realised that I am of a privileged sector of this world where I have more than one country in my heart. And those who know exactly what I'm talking about will nod and say, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Please don't make us choose. We have both. Uh, And that's where I am, except now I have three. Yeah. So I'm nomadic. I'm just going to make one personal comment around that. I know that very well. And and I say, I don't know if you have the same feeling, but on my best days, I feel like I belong in both places that I come from. And then on my worst days, I feel I don't belong anywhere. Correct. Absolutely. Yes. Because I'll never be truly Australian when I'm in Australia. I'll never be truly American when I'm in America because of my accent. And when I go to Turkey, I'm never truly Turkish as well because I, I've never, I wasn't raised there. Like I left when I was six months old. That hardly counts. Right. So I don't belong anywhere, but I belong in all three at the same place. And it's, it is not the same experience uh, as someone who's had generations of uh, ancestry in the one location and still have those t- strong ties there. Certainly not, but um, it's still a very valid one. And I think we need to, and if you're out there and you're having the same thoughts, I'll cut to the chase and tell you, don't try and pigeonhole yourself into one location. You are unique and that you have to realise that you fit into both exactly like that. Sometimes you belong in both, sometimes you don't belong in any. And that's because you're trying to look at it through the lens of somebody who is in only one situation or one location, and you can't do that. Before we started our interview, you mentioned that one of the key steps in coming into your own as a leader was reconciling your multiple identities along all these different ethnic lines. So I'm I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a little more of that. Okay. So growing up in Australia, oh, how do I say this delicately? I I don't know if there's any Australian listeners listening to this podcast, but I grew up being called a WOG which is a derogative, used to be a derogative term for anybody who came from Europe. And we, in the 90s, we reclaimed the word. It was, it was a slur that we used against us. So I was always told I was not Australian enough or, you know, do you know what I mean? Even though I, the way I look and the way I speak and all that sort of stuff just never was. So I, very early on, this was the damage and the trauma done that I touched on before, very early on hid parts of myself in order to fit in really early on, before I could even know what was going on, you know, way back in elementary school. I hid parts of myself to the point where then I literally then changed my name as I turned 18 and then further hid parts of my culture and myself. And things were going swimmingly until they weren't because what I was doing, because we all know that that's just no way to live. You cannot live with, if you want authenticity, that is no way to start, right? (laughs) So a lot of the unpacking that happened in New York, online in front of everybody, was me reconciling and recognising that I am who I am because of every facet, everything, every part of my story. What makes me who I am is because I've lived through all of these things and denying one part of it was denying my truth. And how can I walk in my truth if I am not even looking at it, if I'm not even accepting it? So I had to reconcile all of that. I had to accept and even telling people. I was afraid to tell people because of rejection. And of course, this is rejection that was imprinted in such a young age. So don't look for logic. This is just something that pushed me into that shame spiral way back when I was a child. Uh, So unpacking that, even though it sounds like nothing now, was huge. 
absolutely huge. And it was only then it it really felt like I had finally put my soul back together again. Like I felt whole. If if we're looking for a visceral what it felt like, it felt like I finally felt like, oh my God, this is me. Like this is who I am in every facet. This is who I am. And once I stepped out and uh, slowly but surely, you know, once I stepped out, I, I became stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, and then that's where my power comes from, knowing who I am. Yeah. That's amazing. And I have to say, it's interesting hearing you share some of these things because, you know, even though I, I only had two countries to reconcile and I came here in my mid to late 20s, there was definitely a point where I, I went through a very similar journey. And I'm sure that a lot of the people to come here, no matter, or to move to a different country, no matter when in their life cycle and their state in in the world is have to go through this so thank you for sharing that because i think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people i'm going to ask you a, a couple more business questions and one thing that i like to do uh, is take advantage of the expertise of my guests to you know share information around the world or the industry just a business question in general so what areas of cybersecurity does sea monster operate in okay so sea monster is a sea a security incident event management software in short we put a circle around your entire organization so on prem in cloud all your devices all your endpoints we capture every single incident or every single um, data being transferred and monitor that to allow you to, you know, to be aware and alert you when there is an intruder or, you know, or there is a compromise or to prevent um, ransomware and cyber attacks. Thank you. That's great context for our listeners. So as I mentioned, I'm going to tap into your expertise. And, and this is the question. Over the past few years, the theme of cybersecurity has really become part of the general consciousness, whether it is data privacy, the ability of bad actors to use technology, social media, and the internet to impact elections and attack democracy. There's a whole set of areas that are now a concern of everyone as it relates to cybersecurity. So as an industry expert, what are some of the ways that we should think about these issues? It's kind of like any industry. If, you, if you're a student of history, any industry before, we need more regulation around cybersecurity, but like any industry, there's we've got some catching up to do. Because remember, cybersecurity is not something that anyone has invented. Any system, even democracy, is fantastic in theory. And then people come along and then hack it. Does that make sense? Without the cybersecurity part, we then find ways in which we can manipulate democracy. True? Yes or no? True, right? That is a human behavior that we're speaking of. All we're doing is now implying it into a world, which is now cybersecurity. We're all online and we're so amazed that, oh my God, there's hackers. No, no, this has been happening over and over. Every system we introduce, there is always people who pervert it. There is always people who look for weaknesses, look for vulnerabilities. How can I take advantage of this, that, the other? That's always happened. This is now happening in cybersecurity. So how do we always countermeasure that? Regulations, count, uh, bal uh, checks and balances, and, and so on and so forth. So we're waiting for cybersecurity to catch up with that. So if you think of any other, any other system, oh, my gosh, I can't even think of one that is even religion, right? We manipulate that too. 
So there isn't a organ, isn't anything in which is presented to us that we humans do not go out of our way to manipulate to our advantage. Mm, IT security is the same. Let's close here our business conversation before we go to the more personal questions, even though I guess like they were, everything was pretty personal up to this point. If people want to find you, they want to find Sea Monster, where can they go? Sea Monster spelled S-I-E, monster.com. LinkedIn, I'm Des Rock, D-E-Z-R-O-C-K on LinkedIn and on Twitter as well. You can find me there as well. But uh, (laughs) I think that, yeah, I'm not really after a following. I'm not really after it, which is I, I put myself in a situation where is one of the things I know about myself deeply, right, deeply, as I know who I am and what I am, I have no interest in being a guru, anybody's guru. I don't want a whole bunch of people following me around saying, oh, please tell me what else. Or No, because I think once we do that, you have taken away the fact that I'm human and I'm fallible and we should not do that. You should not be doing that with anybody. Nobody should be on a pedestal. That's fabulous. So... I'm now going to move to the quote-unquote personal questions. The first one is, is there a hobby or a passion that you have outside of work and how has that impacted overall your professional life? My passion is my family. That was hard-earned and well fought for. So everything I do is motivated by them, for sure. My hobbies are very varied. I do a, a lot of stuff, including knitting, which sounds uh, benign on the uh, on the surface, but what it is is ostensibly yoga for the mind. The repetitive action is relaxing enough for allow for meditation and uh, mathematics. And so th- it, it works on a lot of stuff as well as making you a very warm sweater at the end of the day too. So those are the things as well as gaming. I like I love to game. And I generally, I think the one thing is conversations like this. I live for this. I think if this was removed from my life, you could get rid of the knitting. You could get rid of everything else. You cannot get rid of this for me. I need this. Yeah. That's fantastic. This is my favorite question of the podcast, which is every era is business expressions, jargon, and cliches that at some point become empty. Which is the one that drives you crazy? Synergy. Look, one of the things that's happened is once I've stepped into my authentic self is that the ability to read BS in the room so easily and I have such little patience for it and I can see it a mile off and it's very difficult for me to engage and work with now. I need to kind of step back and it's very. I'm sure it's difficult for them as well as I hold them accountable to their thoughts and actions, right, because nobody wants that. The corporate world is set up onto the fact on, it's like nobody wants, you don't do checks and balances. Nobody really asks you, so what do you do? Like what is your role? I just asked that of somebody on an email today. The question was, is like, what is your role here so I can set my expectations, right? Because I was just getting nothing but jargon, absolute jargon. And I knew on a day-to-day basis, nobody holds this person accountable at all. So it's not a very good fit. It's very, obviously for both of us, it's very uncomfortable for both of us. They're not getting away with it. And uh, I'm frustrated because I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Great. Synergy. All right, final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you go the body route, either a recipe of food or a drink that you really love right now. Or if you go the soul route, a book, a piece of music, a movie, a play, a piece of art, something that right now really speaks to you. 
I often create soundtracks for my life and play music to get myself in the mood, whether it's to inspire me. That's a very, that's a tool I use a lot. So if I need to be hyped up, I um, will listen to a particular song to get me in that mind frame. That's one of them. Meals and sharing, breaking bread is a term that I refer to often about connecting with people because that's how we best connect with somebody. So food is the one common we all need to eat. And so sharing Breaking bread with somebody, you know, the, the very analogy allows for that connectivity so you can bond over something even though you think you have nothing in common. The one thing that I crave when I'm away is the black tea. Look, one of the things my ancestors have always done is harvest tea, right? That's the one things we have. We have plantations. And the tea in Rizza, where I come from, doesn't taste like anything else in the world. So that in a small little tulip cup, right, hot piping tea, that's comfort, that's home. And do you know why? Because that represents everything that I've come from and everything that I'm now embracing. That is a great answer. I'm still curious to ask you what's, you know, right now on your playlist, what's the hype song? It's by John Farnham and it's a song called This Time I'm Playing to Win. Everyone, just go listen to it. John Farnham is an Australian singer, songwriter. And I think it's called This Time... I'm playing to win. I think it's called playing to win. Yeah. And then you'll see why I'm listening to it because I'm here. But right now I'm about to, you know, we've just launched V5 and I'm just, I'm literally pitching myself against the big boys in town, you know, and we've worked a lot of, there has been a long journey to get here. And uh, that song is, that's it. That's my backup track, soundtrack right now. Fantastic. Des, thank you so much for this conversation. It was a... An absolute pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Me too. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. If you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Also, make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Audible, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. Stick around because after the credits, I am going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more links for Dez and Sea Monster, go to the episode page on the website. The site is al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here's another song by Susan Cattaneo. It's a song from her album All Is Quiet, it's called Broken Things, and it's about how challenges and difficulties help us make us who we really are and make us better. A yellow rose
Follows the ghost of a teacup Daisies on the hint of a plate Coming up like crocuses out of the earth We lay them on the sill in the sun Delicate and fragile Cause a life we lift must always bear 